Well, hello everyone. Lucky here. How about this? A brand new How to Wow podcast starring the polymath that is Superman, Sam Harris. Sam is a neuroscientist, philosopher, meditation master. His own fascinating podcast is called Making Sense. It's in my top. 10. Also, he has an awesome meditation app called Waking Up. Plus, he's about to embark on a very special audio mission with his good friend Ricky Gervais. In my conversation with Sam, I quiz him on how we can all wow when it comes to meditation. Because if he can't tell us, nobody can. All right, all that's come. But first, this super special one-off episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity and digestion. Deep seaweed green, like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous and so here's how you can get yours simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic Greens.com slash don't forget how to wow. Sam, I might be a bit too excited for my own good. Uh, no, no worries. You'll, you'll balance me out. I'm, uh... <laughs> <laughs> you don't usually do things in the morning, do you? No. Like this? No. So, but I've got a cup of tea in hand, so we're good. Yeah. What have you done thus far this morning? Uh, just went for the tea, the tea and the, the, um, the <laughs> breakfast. But um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a short day. You're getting you're getting me in in uh, my most pristine, undefiled state. <laughs> Nothing has happened. I, I I don't know what's happened in the world. If if uh, there's a war on, I don't know about it. There's usually several, but um, you're quite laid back at the best of times. So this is this is uber laid back, Sam mm. Harris, ladies and gentlemen. Have you meditated yet today? Uh, no, I have not. No, oh. um, and I, I I tend to do that. I don't have a, a set time. When I do that, I just kind of do that sporadically. Um, so I, I, as we may talk about, but yeah, it's 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 integrated in in my life at at many many points. Are you a once or a twice a day meditator? Well, you know, I, I don't tend to divide. I mean, part part of my thinking about meditation at this point is that mm. the the sense that there's a division between formal practice and the rest of life is a is an illusion that really needs to be overcome right it's, it's not actually a it's not helpful to be um, especially precious about formal sessions of meditation and it's certainly not helpful to view the time when you're quote not meditating as fundamentally different from what you experience in practice because re- really the the, the goal, if we can call it that, is to make your life your practice. I mean, you really want to be noticing the same things about the nature of mind when you're 
doing the dishes or recording a podcast or, or doing anything else. And um, so, you know, I, I, I attempt to do that continuously through the day. So I, I tend to do kind of short sessions that are just kind of, that are spontaneous. You know, I'll sit down at my desk and and meditate for a few minutes and then I'll, I'll you know, I may sit for 20 minutes later or, um, but, you know, hundreds of times a day I'm having precisely the same experience that I would recognize as meditation when I'm when I've set aside the time formally to do it. Right now this is because Sam's been at it for absolutely ages for years decades in fact. Um he celebrates his 55th birthday, sorry 54th birthday you're, on the 9th of April. You're aging me. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Give me that I want that year back. <laughs> sorry, you got it. It's the clock's going forward that's fox me. Um let's let's kick off properly. Um, by talking about your recent podcast, Bromance, and podcast Side Hustle uh, with our very own Ricky Gervais, which is is sort of, um, it's a pop-up entitled A Call from Ricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just give give us the headlines of a few of those, if you don't mind? Uh, well, we just kind of initiated this um, side project without any real understanding what we were doing. It's, it's framed as a, a phone call from, from him to me, and uh, it's... These conversations are impressively similar to the the conversations we actually have on a private phone call. So it's you know, and so obviously we we know we're recording it in this case, and we intend to release it. But for the most part, with, it, with I guess a couple of exceptions where we kind of break the fourth wall and and telegraph our awareness that this is not just private, but we, the, this really is virtually the kind of conversation we, we've had anyway on the phone. Um, We've only met once in person, so it's it really is just a, a phone relationship or email, um, and we, we've released three, but uh, we will soon be releasing a a first season of I don't know eight or ten, and um, yeah, I'll announce that at some point, but that that that'll be coming pretty soon. Well, forgive me. Have you not just announced it now? Well, yeah, yeah. I guess I, I have announced it now, but I you know there's not there's nothing there's no details to actually give except. Uh, I believe the title yeah. will be absolutely mental. Uh, even that is not I, locked, but I think that I think absolutely mental is the the name of this as yet unborn podcast. Well, I can't wait. So the first one I heard was when Ricky Friend up said, "Just a quick one, um, dreaming uh, dreams. What do they mean? Um, could you give us a pricey of? I mean, I heard it all, but just I just want to I want to entice new listeners in for you and for Ricky. Now that we know this is a, a, a nailed-on new project, um, dreams. What did you have to say to him to do with dreams? Well, uh, you know, on that topic and every other, we really bounce all over the place. You know, he, I, I'm trying to give a a more or less reasonable answer to his his question, which sometimes is is. Uh, asked in earnest and sometimes it's it's a mere provocation uh, and he's um, he's getting laughs off of off of my earnestness rather often uh, so it's uh, but in the case of dreams we um, I mean the, the purpose of dreams are, are fundamentally mysterious I mean they, they, they do serve the purpose neurophysiologically of memory consolidation it, it seems but um, as to whether or not there's a purpose in in the experiential component of it and, and their weirdness um, that, you know, obviously Freud thought he knew something about that and as did, did uh, a few others. But I think that is still, the jury's still out on 
on most of that. As to why they're so strange, it seems that our, our frontal lobes largely come offline and and uh, stop their reality te- testing insofar as they, they accomplish that in, in the waking state. And um, But th- there is... Th- there's an impressive similarity between what we're doing when we're dreaming and what we're doing in the so-called waking state. There really is a um, not that much difference apart from some frontal lobe activity, and uh, and which is to say that our waking experience is very much a, a visionary experience. I mean, we are in in many respects dreaming our waking experience into its present shape. Uh, and you know, we, then we talk about, you know, the relationship between having uh, insights or pseudo-insights in dreams and w- whether, you know, he's ever told him, uh, told himself a joke in a dream that actually worked out in the waking state. And and uh, I gave him an example of a very bad joke that I thought was hilarious in, in a dream, only to realize that I actually had some form of brain damage upon waking and trying to convey the, the, the hilarity of this joke to my, my wife. Uh, so um, anyway, dr- dreams are, I mean, from to, the connection to the topic of meditation, I don't think we went there in the conversation, but there's a, a very direct connection because the, we, we spend our, our, most of our waking life lost in thought, you know, identified with every thought that arises in our minds. And there's something quite similar between that process and the process of dreaming without knowing that you're dreaming. You know, there's the, there is this phenomenon of lucid dreaming where you can recognize that you're in the dream state and that, you know, that what you're seeing now is a product of your own mind and you're, you're, you're actually safely asleep in your bed, but you seem to be, you know, out of, you know, on stage or at a rock concert or, you know, you know some medical procedure or whatever your, your dream is. But you can kind of break the spell and realize, okay, this is all a a figment of your imagination, and that gives you a a, deg- a degree of freedom to respond to what you're seeing there uh, that that doesn't exist when you think it's all real. There's something quite similar between that breaking that spell and ceasing to be identified with thoughts, which is in fact the the purpose of meditation. So there there um there's there's uh, uh, something to be learned from the, the very common experience of waking up from a dream that we could extrapolate to the rest of our lives and, and uh, be motivated to pay more attention to our experience. See, what I do is I listen to one of your podcasts or a call with Ricky um, or an interview or a conversation on um, waking up. And then I go on the radio the next day and try and pray see it. So after mm-hmm. the dream conversation with Ricky, I came on the next day and said, dreams don't mean anything. They don't mean anything. It's all about. It's like it's like Christmas Day. You get the presents. The presents are your consciousness, and the dreams are the wrapping. They're just there because the presents there, and that's all they mean. And um, they don't have any construct. They don't have. You can't analyze them. And then I realized that a few months ago, in fact, last year, we had a guy on the show who is a dream analyst, but he's a university professor, and I think he's got a PhD in in that. So what do we tell him? Oh, I don't know. It depends what he thinks. Uh, you know, I, I haven't. Uh, I'm sure there are several rabbit holes to go down in terms of uh, yeah. current theory about what dreams mean. Uh, I, I think that to say that they might not mean anything in terms of uh, their interpretation doesn't mean that it's not significant to have them, right? I mean, maybe their significance really is just the effect of having 
that experience, whatever it was. Now, um, your your resume is is so impressive in my tiny mind, anyway. You know, you are a bona fide neuroscientist. You are a philosopher. Uh, you are a multi-book prize-winning author. You're a podcast host. Um, you're a master debater. Uh, you're a meditation teacher, a student. Some might even say guru. We could get onto gurus later. Um, if you had to throw all of those but one out of a balloon to make sure you, you, you continued skywards, which one might be left? Well, they all sort of converge for me. I mean, they, they, they seem on paper, uh, and I guess for the purposes of many specific conversations to be different, but I actually don't draw any real boundary between science and philosophy, depending on, on the topic you're touching. I mean, if we're talking about the, the nature of, of the mind or consciousness or the nature of the self or whether free will exists or you know any uh, topic like that, well then, whether you're doing science or philosophy of mind or, or moral philosophy, if you're talking about you know, right and wrong and good and evil, those are, um, there's just, there is no frontier between the, the disciplines there. And um, one of the problems I think we've had is that we've, we've had our thinking balkanized uh, really by, by extraneous things like you know, architecture on university campuses and and budgets and I mean it's just there is I'm a, I'm a big fan of the the notion of consilience the idea that really there's a, a unity of knowledge um, and I, I would put the study of meditation into that picture I mean you know meditation for me is at least part of the a a potential first person science right where, where I mean, it's not a it's not a surrogate for the rest of science, I'm not saying we can understand the human mind perfectly through, through introspection. We obviously can't. In fact, we can't even tell that we have brains by, by meditating, right? So it's like the, the, there are serious limitations in what you can discover by just closing your eyes and paying attention. But you can discover many things that the study of the brain suggests are, are there to be discovered. Like, for instance, that the, the self, as you you tend to conceive of it is not what it seems. Uh, so that's a, um, yeah, so they really, they all, they're all kind of of a piece, but um, I don't know. I, I consider myself a, a student of the mind, really, uh, you know, at, at bottom. And I, and I use science and philosophy and first person practices like meditation to, to um, prosecute that apprenticeship, you know, by, by turns. The, the menage a trois of neuroscience and philosophy and meditation is, I mean, it's a perfect fit, isn't it? Was that by accident or by design? Because they, they feed off each other so well and feed <clears throat> into each other so well. Um, it was, you know, I, I guess it was by accident or it just, it was, it was how my, my sense of, of, um, what what tools I needed evolved, right? I, I did think I was going to do a PhD in philosophy when I went back to school. And um, it was really at the last minute that I decided to make a lateral move to, to neuroscience. And it, But it was really very much in the spirit of wanting to do philosophy of mind, but just to know more about the brain and to have the tools of neuroscience available to me. So, um, you, know, I, you know, you could kind of join the philosophy and... and 
neuroscience as some people have and, and call it neurophilosophy. I mean, there are people who, who use that word. I don't, I don't tend to use it, but um, that's, that is the spirit in which I went into neuroscience. To, I, wanted, I knew I wanted to think about the nature of, of the human mind and, and the ways in which a, a scientific understanding of ourselves could and should influence our sense of of what it means to live a good life. You know what what kinds of uh, things we should do. You know per- personally and collectively to maximize the, the prospect of human flourishing. And um, yeah, so I, I've just kind of found my way is somewhat you know groping in the dark at times toward uh, being able to have a conversation about all of that and, and really anything that interests me at this intersection of science, philosophy, uh, you know, increasingly politics and, and public policy. And um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's definitely, it's fun. It's, I mean, now I, now I can really simply point my interests wherever they, they, um, they go and uh, it's all really of a piece. And um, in the mix is whether it's the stock or whether it's the seasoning or something in between, is spiritualism. And you, you do say yourself. You've said in the past, and I'm sure you'll say again in the future. Well, I don't know, but I, I forecast you might. Is that um, other scientists and you know the world of science and the world of philosophy, you know the majority of the people involved in both those worlds, they they just they just don't get spiritualism or they don't care about it or spirituality. Um, what are you seeing that they're missing, and how much would would we all benefit if they were a bit more a bit less myopic? Well, first, let me say that their confusion is is understandable because you know even the term spirituality is a problem, right? I, I've tried to to reclaim it, but um, even I'm somewhat embarrassed to use it, right? I mean, it's just it, it has too many associations that are you know starkly unreasonable, right? It's it's a holdover from religion. It's it's got even when you take it out of traditional religion, it, it lands in, in a new age context, right? So it has all of the, the trappings of, of um, irrationality and otherworldliness and superstition uh, around it. You know, you've, you, the moment you talk about meditation or spirituality, it conjures in people's minds things like you know, incense and beads and crystals and a fondness for, uh, you know, alternative medicine and Eastern religion, uh, you know, preferentially, and you know, all it's it is divorceable from all of that, and uh, it must be, in, in my view, it must be divorced from all of that. Um, and I say this as someone who who still likes some of the the cultural aspects of of um, that, that that are associated with meditation and and you know, like in, and Buddhism per se. So, for instance, I, I you know, I'm a big fan of. Indian culture. I've spent a lot of time in India. I love the food. I love the music. I love the, the ancient art. Um, there's, but none of that has a a direct relationship to what meditation is. And in the end, if you go deeply into it, you you recognize that to, to speak about meditation as uh, a, a having any real connection to Eastern religion or, or Buddhism or Indian culture or any other culture is to make the error that, you know, we would have made if we had 
taken the um, the insights of Isaac Newton, say, and said, okay, well here, you know, here we have this this genius who has given us mechanics and optics and the calculus and all of these things are are essentially British and Christian, right? And so to, just imagine if we'd spent the last few centuries thinking about physics, Newtonian physics, as in religious terms, right? So that you, see, you know, this is Christian physics we're 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 practicing, um, and that I mean, first of all, that would have condemned us to take everything else the man was infatuated with seriously. Like you know, he spent just as much time on biblical prophecy and alchemy, right? So imagine not being able to differentiate the the validity of all that from the real science because it's all gospel and. Uh, you know, there's no, uh, we just, we can't edit the, the, the great man's work, um, which is to say, you know, treating him like Buddha w- would have been a bad idea and uh, and it would obviously be a bad idea to launch a space program and, you know, under the aegis of, of you know, religious dogmatism to be, you know, alongside, you know, the, the real principles of designing rocketry you know, we're trying to figure out how to integrate the Eucharist or some other, you know, religious notion into the process, right? I mean, that, that would just be to completely misconstrue the the, the map for the territory. Uh, and uh, But we've done something like that with meditation and the contemplative life generally. It has not been successfully disentangled from its cultural and religious origins so people, so this is a long way of saying that that scientists and philosophers who disregard it, who think it's 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 beneath them intellectually, um, have in their defense this this uh, understandable presupposition, which is this is you know this is an export from religion that is irrational, right? But it, it, it need only take five minutes to cut through that once you see the argument. I mean, there's a very simple ways in. I mean, one is if you want to understand what it's like to be you from the first person side better, why not pay more attention? And and, and what is what does that mean? I mean, what, what would it mean to pay more attention? What What's the first thing you notice when you try to pay attention to your experience? Well, you notice that it's hard to do, right? You notice that you're distracted by thought. And you, you're, you know, someone says, okay, I'll give you a I'll give you $1,000 if you can pay attention to your breath for a minute without getting distracted by thought. If you can just count 60 breaths without getting lost, uh, why, not, why not try that? If you try that and you find that you actually can't do it, right, and, and you can't do it even when they raise it to a million dollars, that should be interesting to you, right? That should be interesting to every scientist and philosopher who pretends to be interested in the nature of the human mind. Um, and that is that is our default state. Virtually no one can do that. I mean, they, 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 there could be people who are confused enough to think they've done it, but um, they're undoubtedly mistaken about that. But in the general case, it requires considerable training in concentration to be able to, to pay attention in that way. And that's... Um, uh, and that's just, you know, that that's not the totality of the project. I mean, that's just a, an ancillary aspect of you know, you know, what meditation is and why one would meditate. But it, the the ground truth is that 
our minds are out of control. And most of our psychological suffering, if not all of it, is meted out to us on the basis of this uh, this default state of our being lost in a very unhappy conversation with ourselves and being unable to break that spell. And all, and all we all we can think to do in that condition is to figure out how to rearrange the, the elements of our lives and things out in the world and the behavior of other people so as to conform better to our, our hopes and fears. But there's there's a deeper project here, which is to overcome yourself, right? To, to, to recognize that you are not what you have seemed to be and that, and that well-being is really on the other side, real well-being, you know, well-being that is really kind of invulnerable to the vicissitudes of experience is on the, is on the other side of that epiphany. Um, but it, it is a hard conversation to start with, with certainly some scientists and philosophers because meditation has, has uh, really amounts to having you know, 2,000 years of bad PR associated with it from the, from the point of view of science. And the thing is, once you've looked over the meditation wall, if you like, um, or fence, you can't unsee it, can you? That's the thing. Um, because you know it's there. Because you can sort of... The first time you have this this sense of the, of, uh, the infinite or what may be transformational and ultimately transcendental, um, you, 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 it's almost instantly addictive. But you didn't really look over the garden fence. You became the garden fence, didn't you, with this first um, psychedelic um, external experience of MDMA that you had. Can you just tell people who don't know about that, can you praise that for us? Yeah, well, and of course, that is the way in for many skeptics. I mean, there, there are many people, and I count myself among them, who probably would be unable to connect with meditation or even the idea that there's any kind of path of practice that could transform their experience without having first touched a very different experience through psychedelics or, or you know, some other, you know, ph pharmacological adventure. Uh, MDMA ecstasy isn't technically a psychedelic, but it's it's often thrown into the same conversation. Um, it's uh, so yeah. I mean that that did a lot of work for people back in the '60s, and 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 it's continued. You know, actually, even before, I mean, you know, Aldous Huxley, as you know, and and some of the the early investigators had their their worldviews fairly shattered by initial experiences with with in Huxley's case, it was mescaline. Um, so yeah, I had a, a first experience with MDMA, which um, I did. This was in the the late '80s, which was before it became a, a popular club drug. It had just been made illegal in the U.S., but <clears throat> it was before it had you know, found its way into the rest of culture and there, there were no raves or, or anything like that. But it, it was kind of an export from the psychotherapeutic community that had been working with it for a while. So I, so when I got the opportunity to take it, it was, re it was really framed for me as an opportunity to, to recognize something about the nature of my mind. This was not a party drug. I was just, uh, you know, I was just with a one friend. Um, and uh, we took it very much in the spirit of wanting to investigate the, the nature of, of mind. Um, 
And I'm sure many of our listeners have had this experience, although the, the, although their experience on MDMA might have been shaped by taking it in a very different context, like at a party or a rave or a concert or something. But it it, ha, it tends to strip away uh, emotional self preoccupation to an amazing degree, and it just it makes one's attention freely available to just connect with other people, whether they're friends or strangers. So so it's often described as an empathogen, right? Increasing empathy. And um, that's that does summarize the experience for me, but it, it doesn't quite get it how profound its implications were in my case. I mean, I just recognized on some level that I was now sane for the first moment in my life. Right. I mean, it did not seem like, okay, this is an amazing drug. Wow. You know, that's fun. It seemed like, okay, every moment that had preceded this was in some sense a a an obscene departure from my birthright as a as a human being. Right. Like this is what I'm experiencing now is more real than what I have been tending to experience born of my own neurotic self-entanglement. And um, because it was just it was just a very simple and lucid experience of, of, of having my, my personal you know, ego fears totally drop away and in, its, in their place was something very much like unconditional love and a total uh, streamlining of my, my ethical, orientation. I mean, it just was obvious to me that my default state was to wish everyone happiness, right? I mean, what else could I wish for the the rest of humanity or all conscious beings everywhere by default? I mean, it would be insane to have, it would be be morally insane to have any other attitude toward other conscious beings. And I I just plunged into the the well of that emotion for four hours or so, and um, it it changed my my sense of what we should expect out of a human life, right? And, and but now my my thinking along these lines has evolved since, and and and, and the experience of of unconditional love is is no longer the the center of the bullseye for me, you know, contemplatively or spiritually. But it's definitely there to be had, and it is a an appropriate counterpoint to uh, all of the other mediocre states of mind we find ourselves getting stuck in, and uh, and it was a total revelation to me. I, and had someone told me it was possible in the abstract without me first experiencing it, you know, I I, I was you know hard headed and skeptical enough that I, I just don't think I would have been remotely interested. It's just like okay, I, I get it that. They're people who are religious maniacs, or you know, psychologically labile enough to be in various states, and they're people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, and you know, there's all kinds of experiences out there, but they don't have any implication for me in my life right now. Uh, and I mean, the, the basic fact here is that it is possible. Uh, and in fact, it's it's, a, it's a, a, the universal experience of 
of our species to not know what you're missing, right? I mean, to really not know what you're missing and to, to, to not know it so fully that when you're told about it, you can't even understand the, the sentences in the way they're intended. And that's, um, that's basically everyone's condition, you know, even... You know, you know, presumably, it's my, it's it's my condition on 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 certain other points even now, but it's um it is a uh, it's something we have to correct for. I, I just I view the project that confronts all of us here morally and and intellectually and psychologically. It's all of a piece. It's really it amounts to the question: What should we do next? You know, what should we pay attention to personally and collectively? What should we care about? Where should we point our minds? Because there's a functionally infinite number of experiences on offer. There's this landscape of possible experience that we can explore, and we, we can't quite, we certainly can't appreciate how vast it is from where we currently stand, and we're, we are kind of groping in the dark toward we know not what, but we know that things can get much, much worse for, for each of us and for all of us, and we know they can get unimaginably better, and we're trying to move from the, the, the bad side of the continuum toward the good, and, their way, we're, you know, and science largely, and you know, culture generally, but science in particular, is delivering us more and more insights as to you know, how to course correct, you know, what, what is it, what should we do to, to increase the likelihood that more and more of us will live lives worth living? And uh, there are answers to those questions. There are economic answers, there are you know, sociological answers, there are political answers, there are you know, answers at every level where we uh, ha- have or pretend to have knowledge about facts. And, um, yeah, so I, I I do view meditation and living ethically as, you know, among the most important things that each of us personally can do to to course correct in that space. See, that's that sounds like because it is. That's what it sounds like. It it is the best puppy sale ever for the sort of quintessential um, boundless existential experience that a human being could could experience could dive into could could get to have um yet nature has wired us um in a way that makes that as difficult as imaginable to to achieve you know without the help of the fast track the otis lift to the top of the mountain of psychedelics why do you think nature has chosen to to make this so difficult for us to attain well because nature doesn't care about our well-being at all, really. I mean, it's just that that's not the situation we're in. We haven't evolved to be happy, you know, just, just based on on Darwinian principles. We've evolved merely to successfully reproduce, and in our case, as, as social primates, to hang around long enough to make sure that our kids successfully reproduce, and you may, maybe in the extreme case, to raise the, the the, the possibility that our grandkids will, you know, or the, the rest of our kin, you know, brothers and sisters, and, you know, the, the extended family phenomenon has been selected for, too. But the truth is that once you, you know, at no point does 
does nature care that you're happy doing all of that unless your happiness is is increasing the likelihood that you will you will successfully reproduce and we just know that we, we have evolved tendencies that are in no sense good for us when the measure of goodness is human well-being or an ability to build a a global civilization that that allows for the maximum number of people to thrive you know our our, our predisposition toward you know outgroup violence right and xenophobia and you know, so you know tribalism generally that's not a good thing it, you know it might have been a good thing 50,000 years ago when we were just you know warring bands of of um, hairless apes but it's you know now that we're trying to get the the human project to cohere and we've got 8 billion strangers trying to figure out how to cooperate with one another tribalism is not serving us and you know i may, maybe it would suddenly serve us again if we were attacked by you know space aliens and we could all unite under that threat then then our in-group altruism and out-group animosity might you know serve a a, a further purpose but it's um it's just so much about us that is non-optimal and uh everything about us that is um that is good that that amounts to a kind of tool that we can use to live better and better lives that is is um derivative of the the hardware and software that that is is purpose for other things. I mean, we're we're social primates that are trying to figure out how to reproduce and not starve to death, and um, that is the the uh, the platform upon which everything else we've managed to do, from you know science and mathematics and music and and philosophy to you know to sports and entertainment and just all of culture uh, it has been born uh, uh, from that. And but we have not evolved to be scientists. You know, we have not evolved to be mathematicians. We have not evolved to be contemplatives, right? And um, uh, and so it's a virtu- virtually everything that makes us human and. Uh, differentiates us from other animals is is a matter of our flying the perch that evolution has prepared for us, right? But then, but to really fly it, right? To really act in defiance of what we are naturally disposed to do, uh, or to, you know, or at minimum sublimate what what naturally preoccupies us into something more noble, more scalable, more um, beneficial to the, the larger project of, of figuring out just how good life can be. I mean, I, I do view the, the two very different scientific projects we could have here with respect to things like, like um, ethics and morality and, and, and uh, you know, answering questions about good and evil and right and wrong. We, we can describe how it is we got here, right? So the, this we can ha- we can develop an evolutionary psychology, um, or and that's a that's a completely valid thing to do, and that's it's fascinating, but it, it is distinct from uh, 
another project, which is to understand what's possible for us given how we got here, given what we are as apes, you know, t- technology producing apes, what, how, how good might human life get? You know, how good a society is possible? And that's a, th- those questions do not have Darwinian answers, right? Those are very, di- th- that's a very different uh, set of scientific questions and, and analyses. And that is, that's, that is a, a question of just what, what kind of minds do we have now and what, what kind of minds will we eventually have and what, what experiences are on offer to those minds. And uh, that's, um, you know, again, we're, we're just exploring that, whether we think of it in those terms, and um, we can be more or less, you know, rational in, in how we do all that. So I know that why questions, Sam, I know they're really amateurish, but but you are, once again, melting my brain here, and I'm actually talking to you as opposed to just mm-hmm. listening to you on a podcast. Um, is there a reason that our ability to experience ecstasy exists, or is it just a, a very convenient and potentially enjoyable sideshow? Well, yeah, there's certainly um, likely to be a reason uh, for it. I mean, we experience it in, in many other modes, right? I mean, there's, it is part of what's rewarding about sex, obviously, and just pleasure generally. I mean, it, ecstasy is a, is really kind of just the volume of, of you know, the brain's pleasure centers being turned up to 11, right? I mean, that that's, uh, you know, whatever you want to call that, that's a capacity of the human brain. And it, it is um, part of what is uh, explains our our desire for many things in life that uh, you know obviously have Darwinian uh, Darwinian logic behind them. Uh, it doesn't cover everything. It doesn't tell you why it should be applied to you know music or or anything else that, that isn't strictly adaptive. But um, I mean, so much of of what we are subjectively is. Um, is an extrapolation from something far more primitive, right? I mean, so you take um, take our intuitions of of right and wrong, and even just you know logical and illogical, right? So just just the the, the acceptance of a proposition as true or valid or good, or its rejection as being false or or um, you know, otherwise invalid or, or wrong, you know, morally speaking. Uh, I mean, these, that's, you know, that is a linguistically mediated uh, behavior and an act of, of cognition that no other animals perform, right? I mean, chimps don't do that. But uh, when we do it, it is, it, it's using the hardware, the same hardware, that we use to judge whether you know food is bad, right? Whether food is disgusting. I mean, it's the same circuitry that mediates, you know, all psychological re- rejection states, like disgust, is mediating our judgments of you know, the validity of propositions, at least to some degree. Our brains are um, are continually bootstrapping on the basis of um, existing 
structures to do new things. And evolution is just not a process that gave us new structures that were you know, bespoke for new things it wanted us to do, right? I mean, we just, that's just not how it works. So um, it's this, this incremental tinkering uh, and repurposing. And it's, um, so yeah, I mean, there's nothing ideal about our minds. It's amazing that we can do all that we can do. It's amazing that we can seem to understand what's going on out there in the universe. Because if we just look over our shoulders at our, our nearest cousins, it's obvious that they can't understand much of anything, right? I mean, just there's no way that the chimps are going to form a a, a conception of what's going on up in the in the night sky or or internal to their bodies or or I mean, point their their attention anywhere. They have no idea what circumstance they're in, and to the degree that we do have an idea and and it, you know that it's it's still I think we're right to be fairly impressed with how much progress we've made and are making we're still profoundly ignorant of of uh, what we what we don't know right I mean that 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 much has to be obvious I mean there's no we're, we're barely we've barely stepped into the light Uh and we we shouldn't and we should expect. I mean, if we're, if we're going to take Darwinism seriously, you know, the, the logic of evolution seriously, uh, we shouldn't expect that our intuitions are well suited to understanding reality as it is. I mean, because they have not evolved to do that at all. Uh, so it, it is amazing that we can we've been able to to leverage. You know the tools that we have uh, into places where our um, our intuitions ha- have absolutely no business because they, they they've never you know nature has never seen fit to to um, equip us to have intuitions there. But you know you know the the and this this relates to the the, the very small you know the the things that are you know smaller than than rocks, uh, uh, you know, to, to be able to have any conception of the vast distances, you know, the orders of magnitude going down into, you know, atoms and and below, uh, into you know the, the the physics of subatomic particles, uh, or outward toward the very very large, you know, galaxies and beyond, or vast stretches of time, and you know, be able to talk about what happened nearly fourteen billion years ago. I mean, there's just there is nothing about evolution that has directly prepared us for that because um, that's just not that's not what the game has been for hundreds of thousands of years and and millions of years before that as as um, social primates. You talk like the universe, and for people who've never meditated before, um, the portal, the keyhole. The minuscule keyhole um, that begins with the tiny habit of like day one on the waking up app, for example. Um, how far into this stillness, um, this oneness, if you like, however you describe it, much better and articulate and informed than, than I would, how far might they be able to expect to get into it? What might they expect 
to experience. And also, back to your first um, MDMA psych- semi-psychedelic experience that, that made you realise that you've never really been free or, or been free to live before uh, or exist like your birthright um, should have let you know. Uh, how close to that if indeed this is the purpose anyway, has your meditation over the years with some of the greatest uh, meditation masters on the planet of the last century, how close has it got you, A, back to that, if that's the comparison I'm looking for, or B, somewhere else? Just Because what is it like for, when you meditate and you're on it, you, you know, it's 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 a good day for that. Where do you go? How does it feel? You know, can you have a weekend meditation that's different from a weekday meditation, for example? Can you can you mm. can you groove it up or dial it down? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So now we're talking about the the logic of meditation, which you know, once you get into it, you recognize that it is somewhat paradoxical and not as straightforward as as often advertised. So most people get into meditation recognizing that they have a problem. You know, they they don't feel the the way they want to feel most of the time. They're not as happy as they they want to be or think they should be based on the the details of their life you know they they may have gotten much of what they they wanted or or thought they wanted out of life and yet they notice that uh, even even with with their desires gratified or often gratified they they're not satisfied right there's there's a dissatisfaction in satisfaction that they begin to become sensitive to and all of this is um, depressing right it's depressing to marry the the one you love and recognize that most of the time you're not that loving right you're you're too stressed out you're you're too unhappy you're bringing you're bringing your own unhappiness to the table so much of the time that your relationship is just is not a circumstance of, of, you know, leaping from one celebration of life to the next, you know, where, where, you know, gratitude is your, your, and happiness is your basic state. No, it's a, this is now another stage upon which you are prosecuting the, the struggle of, of your, you know, vain attempt to attain happiness professionally, psychologically, uh, you know, interpersonally, and, you continue to fail, right? I mean, that, that is where most people are. I mean, there's some, there's some very lucky people who, you know, for genetic reasons or, or, or you know, circumstantial reasons, they, they, they have a default state of, they have a baseline happiness, which is very high, and, you know, they may not know what I'm talking about now, but most people listening to this know exactly what I'm talking about, um, so, which is to say that even the luckiest among us aren't all that happy. And... Um, so that that presents as a problem to most people, and then, then they meditation is often proffered as a solution to that problem. Right? So your problem is your your um, you don't know how to meditate. You, there's something you're you're taken in by various illusions, and here here's the practice, um, and you know the practice might be to pay more attention to the breath as an initial object of you know training the mind. Um, it often is in, in the context of, of teaching mindfulness, and I, and I use the breath as a, as a starting object on the Waking Up app as well. 
Uh, it's just it's very useful. It's always there. It um, it uh, doesn't require that you adopt any any artifice based on Eastern religion. You know, they, you don't have to add a mantra to your experience. I mean, you're just you know you're you're breathing anyway. And the initial exercise is to try to pay attention to the sensations of breathing, and you'll notice you can't do that very well. You notice that you the, you you'll, you'll be aware of a breath or two, and then you'll completely forget you were even attempting to meditate. You'll be thinking about this meeting you have to have on Zoom later in the day, and what are you going to say? And you know, is 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 your webcam is going to make you look old? And you're you're talking to yourself, uh, and then at some point, you know, after ten seconds or ten minutes, you recognize, oh, I'm supposed to be meditating, and then you go back to the breath, and so and it's that vacillation between distraction and paying attention to something, you know, any arbitrary object, that is the practice in the beginning. And it's hard to do for most of us. But then you start to make some progress. And progress there is you you develop a, a greater facility for concentration so that when you direct your attention to the breath, or to anything, to sounds or other sensations in your body, or even you know your your visual field. I mean, eventually the practice opens up and it incorporates everything you could experience. You notice that you your attention can actually sink into the present moment more and more. And once you begin to do that, really, once you just have a modicum of concentration, you begin to feel better because because con- it just turns out that concentration is intrinsically pleasurable. I mean, it really is the gateway to states uh, that are often described as flow states in in positive psychology, and it, and it is the key to why we like certain things so much. Whether it's um, you know sports or music or you know, many of the things we like to do, naturally concentrate our minds, and when we when they're really fun, our minds are so concentrated that we're that we're losing ourselves in those activities. So if you're if you're playing sports, you're, let's say you're skiing, and you're you're just having, you're not experiencing any uncertainty about your technique. You're not you're you're not thinking, should I do this? Should I do that? You're not worried about falling. You're not you're you're completely at one with the just the the pure sensory experience of gliding down the mountain. Those are the moments that people come back for, and that's you know you that's why people ski to have that. That you know, the sheer pleasure of, kind of unity with experience, but these are you know it's an arbitrary sensory experience that is you know it, it is strange that it is so pleasurable. It's so pleasurable largely because concentration is pleasurable, and you just you begin to discover that when you get uh, some ability in in meditation that. Paying attention to anything, even as something as boring as the breath, becomes intrinsically pleasurable if you can actually let attention rest on it to the exclusion of, of other things, and you're, you're no longer distracted by thought. Now, as you begin to have that experience, you then, it's quite natural to associate that mental pleasure with progress, right? Like you begin to think, okay, this is why I meditate, right? This is, I, I want to feel this way. If I could only so feel I, this, what was that? 
that's where I am at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then you think, okay, this is here. These are the goods, right? This is this is this is why I do it, and and the goal now is to feel like this more and more of the time, and to, and to deepen this, right? To deepen this mental pleasure, and then you can have experiences of of real bliss and ecstasy, and you know, emotional openings that are you know indistinguishable from what I experience on MDMA. I mean, you can, you can certainly experience unconditional love in meditation and compassion and, um, you know, tears of gratitude streaming down your face. I mean, all of that, all of that, you can kick open the door to mental pleasure of that kind without drugs, purely by paying attention to the breath or, or, um, uh, by doing a, a, a more classically, you know, state targeting uh, meditation practice like like loving kindness practice where you're you're explicitly trying to generate the the emotion of loving kindness or compassion um, there's no question those states are there to be experienced but there those experiences like any other are impermanent right I mean they, they come and they go and so the, the deeper insight that one has in meditation is that the real goal, is not to change experience, per se. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's not, that's the wrong level of focus. The goal is to recognize what, something more fundamental about the nature of experience that represents its own uh, remedy, you know, to, to your problem or, or pseudo-problem of, of seeking happiness. I mean, the, 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 the epiphany here really is that while we spend most of our lives seeking to become happy, we can't actually become happy. We can only be happy, right? Those those moments where you seem to become happy, where you you know you you get what you want, or you you know you accomplish the goal you've been working toward for years, you know you you get you you have a peak experience. When you're when you're in the embrace of that experience, the key to happiness there is is that you. You're no longer seeking it, right? You've arrived, and and uh, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, m- most people, even when they get what they want, they fail to arrive, right? Their, their, their minds are so fickle that they can't even, you know, even as the object of desire is arriving in your hands, you can't fully pay attention to it because you're distracted by other things. You're you're looking over the shoulder of the present moment to the next thing that's coming, or you're you know, or it's or, or it's insufficiency is revealing itself to you even as you're unwrapping it and um, and yet so there's a there's a deeper insight here which is that real well-being is a matter of finding the the present moment captivating enough such that you're not trying to get anywhere else the, the project of becoming happy has ceased if only for a time, right? I mean, it's like you're not like the, the, those. The experience of really arriving is to is to actually arrive, right? To actually actually say this is enough, this is good enough, you know, or even beyond that, this is perfect, right? And this meaning this is always this moment of consciousness, you know, consciousness and its contents, whatever they are in this moment, and. So ultimately, meditation can't be, you know, real meditation can't be a process of producing transitory, 
you know, albeit very pleasurable states of mind by focusing your attention deliberately on various things to the exclusion of, of other things. Ultimately, real meditation has to be a, a discovery that what you are in each moment is already free, right? You're already, you've, you've already solved the problem of existence on some level, whatever, whatever's happening. Because there's, there's always something happening. There's always something changing. There's always something you need to do next to make sure the, the boat isn't leaking, right? You're not going to, you can't, you can't, I mean, unless you just want to sit in the corner of your room and, and expire, you know, you have to eat and you have to figure out how you're going to get the food if you have to eat and you have, I mean, you have to protect yourself from sunburn or, I mean, like there's, there's stuff, unless you just want your body to unravel, there are things to do. And, and so that work doesn't cease, but your sense that your well-being is predicated on something new happening, uh, that's predicated on the next thing, even the next experience in meditation, that needs to evaporate, right? And so meditation ultimately is inspecting this whole process of seeking to change your experience closely enough to, re to recognize that there's, there's actually no one in the middle of this who needs to be gratified, right? And, there's, and, and once you punch through to that insight, there's, you know, uh, you know, happily and, you know, somewhat ironically, it, uh, everything becomes more gratifying, right? I mean, you're, you, you do get many of the, the, on some level, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, because you know, there's a lot of mental pleasure just in no longer being bound up by this, this unhappy conversation you've been having with yourself about all the things you need or want or regret or etc. And so there, but it is it is somewhat paradoxical because it, it is not that it's not that you have a self and you get rid of it by successfully meditating. It's not that you have a real problem of bondage that you overcome by spiritual insight. You know, it's not that you're in prison, you know, and and you successfully break out through your contemplative efforts. No, there's there's an, an illusion here that needs to be recognized. It's like you're, it's like you're at the bars of your prison. You know, you're you're you know holding the, the gripping the bars between your hands and looking through them, and trying to figure out how to break out. But you're you're on the outside looking in, right? It's like if you just turned around where you currently stand, you'd recognize there's nothing at your back, right? And and that's and you're and you're already free, right? But you're faced in the wrong direction, and so it's that. There's a, there is a paradox, but it's a paradox that one can't fully appreciate unless one does, in the, in the usual case, a fair amount of meditation practice. Were you verging on headlessness then? Is that what you, am I describing what what headlessness? No, is to... you know, at the end when you you know you you're on you're, you're outside the bars looking in. It depends where you're pointing where your attention is because mm -hmm. headlessness is is also a completely fascinating subject, which you've talked about in your books, haven't you? Yeah. Are you, a fan, are you a fan of or a student of it? Am I, sorry, sorry, I didn't hear you there. Am I, am are you I, a fan or a student of it or is it something that you've observed? Do you, do you agree with the philosophy of headlessness? Yeah, so, you're, so you're, what you're referencing is, is a, 
an analogy, but it's really more than an analogy. It's it's it's, it's a an instruction that um, you know has many similarities to what has been traditionally advocated and described in in Buddhist and you know Indian uh, and and beyond. You know, also in, in Taoism and and uh, but largely Eastern teachings of around this notion that the, the ego is an illusion, you know, that selflessness is something that can be directly experienced. Um, but this, the, the, the notion of losing your head is, um, or looking for your head and failing to find it comes from Douglas Harding, who was a, a British teacher of, I guess, nominally Zen. I mean, Zen is where he started, but he was really teaching his own thing. And um, I never met him. I, you know, I've... Um, there's a, a student of his who really the person who's taken the mantle from his his uh, way of teaching Richard Lang who has a, a series of lessons on on uh, the waking up app which are fantastic and he has a wonderful voice too um, uh, which targets this this practice but it's you know what Harding recommended is that you you just with your eyes open as you look out at the world or you you, you might even be in conversation with another person, so you could be looking, you know, at another person's face. Uh, whatever you're looking at, notice that you you can't find your own head, right? You know, you you know, you know, you have a head in the abstract, but as a matter of experience, where your head is supposed to be, there's just the world, right? So, so he he would often ask people to look for their head as they're looking at the world. And that's that can seem like a ridiculous instruction. You know, people will think, well, of course I can't see my head, or you know, like I, I can see the side of my nose. That's my head. So, so you know, you're wrong, Douglas. Um, but that's that's really to miss the point. There there is a a way of turning attention or attempting to turn attention upon itself to look for what's looking or to look for your head, which changes one's direct experience uh, very quickly and if, if only for a, for a moment in the beginning for you know it's very likely only for a moment for most people but it, it's it's immediate right and it is you know and, and Douglas describes it beautifully in his books and his, his first book on this topic on having no head is is uh, probably the the one I would recommend um, but it's uh, it is it, you know, it, it's, it's it's certainly the same. He hasn't gotten the credit I think he deserves in in Buddhist and and you know contemplative you know spiritual circles because he sort of invented his own language. But I think there's no question he was talking about the same insight into selflessness that that Buddhists and um, you know non-dual you know, Advaita Vedanta teachers are talking about uh, and. It's a completely legitimate practice to do, to look for your head and notice what happens in that first moment of turning and to do that again and again, you know, in, in as, as much as you can remember to do it. And what you find is is you can't find yourself, right? And ultimately, that, that not finding becomes decisive, right? It's not just this strange sense of, yeah, you know, I can't find myself. Well, so what? It's there's there is no center to conscious experience, 
right? The sense that you're on the edge of something looking in, the sense that you're behind your face, that you're behind your eyes looking out at a world, you know, that is not you, that subject-object perception, that can break down. I mean, that isn't actually true of you, right? I mean, that, that, is, that is something that you're presuming by being identified with thought. And if you continue to inspect it, and this is one mode of inspecting it, you know, looking, looking for your head uh, as you look at the world, you can glimpse what consciousness is like prior to that construction of subject-object distance. And it's merely open, it's centerless, it's unencumbered by its contents. I mean, it's, it's, it's not different from its contents. It, it's, it's, there's, no, it's, there's no division between consciousness and its contents. You know, it's, it's sights, sounds, sensations, and even thoughts. But it's not um, implicated by the changes in its contents. It's, it's not harmed by negative experiences in the way that we tend to presume psychologically and it's not benefited by positive experiences in the way we presume it's not it doesn't it's free right and it fe- and and the more you can recognize that state of non of non-dual awareness the more you can feel that freedom right so initially it's there's you you just glimpse it and and this is really the, the kind of the liability of focusing on this too early and too much because you know if if you can just gl- if you just glimpse it and it goes away you know in, in the next moment in, in Douglas's world I, I think um, he had this experience quite a lot where he was teaching this to people and they were get they were they were having this experience of headlessness uh, but you know, Douglas said you know, the voice of the devil says so what. Right, I mean, the, the, the most frustrating, uh, and in some cases uh, unconquerable opposition he would he would get is, is from people who did glimpse this thing, but just didn't see the point of it. And it, it's it's understandable how that, it, and this is actually in a more traditional context, like in the, in the Dzogchen teachings in Tibetan Buddhism, they're they're well aware of this problem, and that's why they. They, they don't tend to teach people this way until they've gotten much more deeply into meditation practice um, I mean, for two reasons. One is to, to have a lot of experience in meditation practice it makes, you, it makes it much easier to, to perform this exercise because you know what it's like to be concentrated. You know the difference between being lost in thought and not. But the other principle is that until you've spent a lot of time or enough time struggling to kind of break through spiritually, you know, until you've spent some time, you know, on silent retreat, you know, trying to to get somewhere in your meditation practice, you might not recognize that this glimpse of non-duality really is the thing you were looking for, right? Like it really is, it really does balance the equation of your spiritual life. Uh, And even though you can only glimpse it briefly in the beginning, you know that you you you've, you you can very quickly resolve your doubts about the significance of what you saw there, and you can then be motivated to pay more attention to it. 
whereas if you just if, if someone like Douglas Harding manages to get you to have this experience completely outside the context of having been a a spiritual seeker of any kind, it's possible to say, well, yeah, well, that's that's weird, but so what, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't answer all of your spiritual questions because you didn't have any spiritual questions, right? You were just you know on your way to to work. Um, and that's um, so that, that is a problem of kind of the, the premature induction into the the most profound, you know, paradox uh, defying teachings of non-duality. Um, but you know, it's it's um, yeah. I, I I think I think you, you sort of need to split the difference there and introduce it early, but also introduce it in the context of of a more dualistic type of mindfulness practice. Yeah, no, it's good that. So you, so you glimpse it, so you're aware of it, and then you bank it for later, maybe. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, I would, re- I wouldn't recommend that you not glimpse it as much as you can. But it's just, um, and it can be frustrating to be told, to, you know, it's that that it's there to glimpse and to you know, to be looking for it and to not be able to resolve that and to feel like you know, that's. Uh, I mean, some people get frustrated with that in in. The waking up app. I hear from from people complaining that they they don't like that instruction because they don't know what I'm talking about or or what Richard Lang is talking about, and um, they, it just feels frustrating. And that's you know that's something that ultimately one can get past. And there's, there's just more to to say about you know how to practice in in the meantime. But ultimately, that is the that is the type of mindfulness. I mean, once your mindfulness becomes truly non-dual, right? Once once being mindful becomes synonymous with recognizing that there is no self in the middle of experience, uh, me, many things change about meditation practice. I mean, then you're, then you re, that for the first time, you can really say you're not trying to get somewhere when you're Meditating because because you you are because the somewhere you would try to get to is already true you know of, of consciousness I mean you're already you, you you really have arrived I mean you really can say that the the goal of meditation has become the path of meditation there and uh, it's not to say there isn't any reason to still practice and there is because in the next moment you're going to get lost in thought and you're you you'll be you know ordinary in all the ways that lead to predictably to to unhappiness but the the question is what what are you th- aware of in the next moment when you become mindful you know when you, when you notice that a thought is present and it begins to unravel what what can you notice most people starting out then just apply their attention to the breath or to sounds or to whatever you know whatever's there to be noticed in this dualistic kind of you know, strategic way, hoping to get somewhere, and that's that's understandable. But that is a that is a kind of circling the airport holding pattern that you know ultimately one needs to to overcome. I mean, to actually land the plane, you need to recognize that 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 consciousness is already this way. It's already free of self. It's already open. It's already it's all it's already without a a dilemma. And to to become coincident with that that uh, experience is 
is what mindfulness is ultimately for. I mean, that's that's what meditation is. And that and from that point of view, meditation isn't something you're adding to your experience. It's not a practice. It is just what it's like not to be distracted by thought in that moment. And it's it's, it's not even, but it's, it's not to say to be without thought. I mean, it's, it's not that you're suppressing thoughts. You can you can experience this in the presence of the next arising thought, but you know it takes some time to be able to to recognize that. What about the sensation for a newbie like me again? Um, what about the sensation that I do feel like now, as opposed to trying to become happy and realizing more that the way forward is to be happy? I do get a sense, and maybe I'm being too idealistic here, that sometimes happiness taps me on the shoulder to remind me it's it's behind me. It it is here, and that. I do get that feeling, and it's a lovely feeling. Is does that chime? Is that right? Is there, is there a right? Is there a wrong? Yeah, well, that is a um, an, an experience that is worth uh, understanding. In addition to just enjoying it, uh, and perhaps trying to engineer more of it by by ceasing to to be taken in by the illusion that happiness is elsewhere, right? Or that you need some elaborate life change to get that feeling back. It's worth just understanding the the um, the implications of that, right? It, it, it's like they're, they're very simple uh, examples here that can that give us a clue to the the, the the latent capacity of our mind to suddenly reset and experience uh, something new. So, so for instance, you know, we, most people have had this experience where they're unhappy. You know, they could be really pissed off about something. There's a, this, you know some crisis, I mean, or mini crisis in their life that is more or less totally polluting their their minds, um, and then the phone will ring, and it'll be a call that they, you know, they they really have to take, and it's a call that's not compatible with them just complaining about how bad life is in that moment. They know they have to function in a very different mode. I mean, let's say your your boss calls you, or you know some you know somebody calls you, where you just need to just function differently. It, it's a very common experience to pick up the phone and to for for the period of you know period of ten minutes. To have a to be in a totally different state of mind. It's not like you're struggling to get over your anger or your, you know, your sadness or whatever it was a moment ago. Uh, no, you just shift and you're just you're, you're solving a problem or even having a a a, a happy exchange with someone. You know, a, 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 a in some cases an unimaginably lighthearted exchange, given where you were a few moments ago. Uh, and then you put down the phone, and then you pick up your problem again, right? You just go right back to it. Now, that proves to you, or it should prove to you, that it's possible, it's always possible to interrupt your unhappiness you know, at a moment's notice, right? You can simply pay attention to something else uh, and, and open your mind to those, to, to, to the landscape uh, that's behind that door, right? And that's um, there's a lesson to be drawn from that. I mean, you can, you know, like how, you know, if something makes you angry, how long 
do you need to feel angry? You know, is it, is it, is it an hour? Is it a day? Is it, is it one minute? Is it 15 seconds? Um, m- mindfulness allows you to discover that the half-life of a negative emotion is very, very short. I mean, it just it dissipates over a time course of seconds, and it has to be continually resurrected by thinking in order to, to be maintained. I mean, the only way to stay angry is to keep thinking about why you have every right to be angry. Is, is to keep rehearsing the injustice that was done you, you know, or to you know, to be imagining the thing you should have said to that person who you now hate. Or I mean, it's like like you have to be lost in thought. You have to have entered a theater and started watching a bad movie in your mind to 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 maintain that state. And I'm not saying anger is never useful, it's, or that it's never appropriate to be angry or to be motivated by. Anger. I, mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a salience signal, right? It's 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 a signal that there's something worth paying attention to out in the world, and then the question is, well, once you pay attention to it and and understand what you think is going on, how useful is it to be angry from that point forward? The answer to that question is almost never is it useful to be angry, right? It's like even if even if you're in the presence of someone who you know, is a genuine jerk who who in, intends you harm, right? Anger is is rarely the best mode in which to try to deal with that problem. So mindfulness al- allows you to just get off the ride when you want to or when, when it seems wise to. Uh, and so that it's, um, yeah, so there's, there's a long answer to your question, but the, the natural interruptions of one's unhappiness by just, you know, noticing how beautiful a, a, a tree is, right, as you're, you know, stepping outside your front door. Um, it's, it's, that's, those are obviously nice things to experience, but, and, and you, you can try to experience them, experience them, them more and more, and, and meditation is the way you would, you would do that. But it's also just worth extrapolating from that and noticing that that is, the way the mind is, it's 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 perpetually open to to interruption and diversion and 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 punctuation and um, and our 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 enchantment with thought is the thing that keeps us from noticing that. See, I have no idea what my one percent of uh, being free of not free of thought, but free from thought. So not. Um, peace of mind but peace from mind you know and and being aware of that is to your one percent but it but i have experienced it and it's it's you just want to go and shout and tell everybody you say you need to try this because you know one way it's couched isn't it that you know anger is something you experience but you are not angry anger is happening to you or for you or around you and once once you see that you know again you can't unsee it and it's so useful how can we impart this sort of golden nugget or this sort of vault full of golden nuggets to, to our pals. How, how, what's the best way without sounding preachy, Sam? Well, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do in waking up. I and mean, that's why I built the app. And, you know, and it, you know, it's a problem that it, for me, it's still hard to solve because it's hard to, um, you know, it, 
it's hard to say to people, you know, even on my own podcast. I mean, this is something that I, I keep trying to do, and I, I will keep trying to do. Um, but it it is hard to, to to not strike a note of preachiness, or you know, in my in this case, you know, because the app is a subscription business, to not seem like you're, you know, just mercenarily flogging your your captive audience by saying you know you need to go over there and experience what's happening at waking up but it, the truth is that's where i'm putting everything i think is useful uh, on this topic and it is there's a lot to say and there's there are many practices that are very useful um, and and really best delivered by audio in that context i mean i don't even think video helps so it's um in in some ways it's it's uh it's an amazing piece of good fortune that the technology exists because I really think it, you know, audio is the perfect technology to deliver instruction on this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have the same problem on my own podcast. Whenever I talk about meditation, I know that people's association with the term is generally misleading. You know, they they have a, in my on my podcast especially because I have so many scientifically minded skeptical people you know, you know very rational and well-educated people in my audience um, they're they're basically skeptical about meditation and anything that seems too woo-woo um, and so a significant percentage of people in my audience who, who love my podcast apparently are sick of hearing me talk about these things right like like the conversation we just had is precisely the conversation they would tune out for Right, like the you know, they want to hear me talk about politics or just science generally. They want me to talk about you know, have a phys physicist on and talk about the, the cosmos or whatever. But the, the the truth is, I know that they're wrong to be bored. I know that they're wrong to feel unimplicated in this conversation. I know that they're mistaken. I know that they don't know what they're missing. I know that their their conflation of any discussion about meditation and states of you know, consciousness like unconditional love or self-transcendence with religious dogmatism and belief, you know, a belief in God or a belief in the divine origin of a book like the Bible, I know that that is just pure confusion, right? Because I was that person, right? And I know, I just, I know what it's like not to have had certain experiences and I know what it's like to then have them. And I know that it's not, you know, this isn't a faith-based or belief-based discussion, right? This is it's not that I have faith in the Buddha or no, it's 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 no more. There's no more faith required than you know hitting your thumb with a hammer. You know requires the, you know faith to believe that you don't want to do that again, right? Um, so this is an empirical uh, inquiry and an opportunity, and yet it's hard to message to people without without proselytizing in a way that is off-putting. And so at a certain point, you just, I mean, you just have to be the message, right? I mean, you just say, like, if you, if you seem like a jerk who's perpetually distracted and unhappy and at, you know, cross purposes with your, with yourself, you know, you're, 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 no, you're, you're not especially ethical. You're not like, you're not, you're, you're a bad commercial for whatever it is you're preoccupied with. Well, then, you know, it doesn't matter how good your story is. You're you're not going to be convincing to people. And if you um, if you are getting real benefit from 
anything you're doing, whether it's meditation or, or something else, well, then you know some number of people will, be, will become interested in it. Um, but it's you know I, I do feel. I mean, I think there's there's slightly different rules for one's personal relationships and one's public uh, public facing discussion of of ideas. You know, like I you know I don't I don't think. I mean, I I, I, I virtually never now feel the the need to push meditation on anyone personally, right? Like in in my social relationships, that's that's just not happening. It happened in the beginning when I was you know 20 years old and I was trying to get my you know my mom to meditate or or um, my closest friends, right? And, and and that was that's there's an initial enthusiasm there that is irrepressible and and understandable, but. As I've gotten older, there's much, you know, that, that I don't know when that went away, but it went away many years ago. But as far as one's public discussion of these things, you know, and and there's just no way for me to keep it out because it is, it is the most important thing I've ever learned, right? So I just can't, I can't pretend that it isn't, and I can't, and it clarifies so many things. It clarifies specific scientific and, and philosophical. Debates. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed the the collisions I have over topics like free will. You know, like this this pseudo problem in philosophy that everyone has you know got their um, got their mind wrapped around the axle of. Um, it's you know once you recognize that there is no thinker in addition to to the thoughts themselves that arise in your mind, it. This free will debate it becomes unintelligible. I mean, there's just no, there's no free will doesn't name anything in your experience. It's not to say there's no difference between voluntary and involuntary action, but the the, the free will that people think they have is just the the flip side of the coin of of feeling like a self that is, is that is doing this free willing. Um, and when you cut through that, the 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 problem, the intellectual problem, evaporates. But so if you put me in a conversation with someone like Dan Dennett or, or um, uh, more recently, you know Scott Scott Barry Kaufman, the, the psychologist who whose podcast I was just on, talking about this for a few hours, uh, it's it's becomes a frustrating conversation because it, it, it is simply at the end of the day, it's it's like talking to people who have not run the necessary experiment on themselves to resolve. This philosophical problem—it's like you know people not looking, not putting their eye to the telescope, and uh, arguing about what you know about the the moons of Jupiter, right? Unfortunately, in this case, you have to build your own telescope, right? I mean that you have to learn to pay attention, and uh, no one can no one can do that for you. And so you know that's what I'm doing over at Waking Up, trying to give people the tools they need to to do this, but. Um, yeah, it can. It's it, it touches so many of the other topics I I focus on, and so it's it's hard, it's very hard to keep it out of the conversation. Yeah, I I love the fact you mentioned uh, free will. Obviously, you've written a short book on that. It was a conversation topic that I thought we might discuss today. We we are out of time. Um, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Just before you go, how, what's the closest you've come to enlightenment personally? Um, and also in the presence of someone else. And what what's it like, please, <laughs> if you don't mind? Well, so again, it, it's not 
it's not the way I'm tending to think I about know, this, I right? Know. So I guess it's not a. I just want the, the, the thing. So so this is what I. This is what I. You know, I honestly don't know how far this all goes, which is to say that you know I'm not sure what enlightenment is ultimately, uh, but what seems true to me is that there, there seems to be every reason to believe that it's possible to recognize the non-duality of experience. I mean, to recognize that there's, there's, um, the, the circumstance is not that you're, it's not that you're standing on the riverbank watching the contents of consciousness go by, right? Like watching the stream go by from, from a point outside the stream. There's actually just the stream, Right, so you, so so it's not that you're, it's not that you, the subject, is having an experience right now. That that's part of the the sense that you have, the, the sense that you're a subject is part of the, the fabric of experience. I mean, so so, from the first person side, there's only experience. Right, I'm not making a metaphysical claim about the the, the cosmos. I'm not saying that you know consciousness is all there is, but consciousness is all there is as a matter of experience, and you're not on the edge of it. You're not in the middle of it. You're it, right? And that's so that experience of unity, or you know, to use the Buddhist term, emptiness. You know, non non division. Um, that's there to be recognized immediately, and and whenever I'm mindful, that's what I am mindful. That's what I'm mindful of. And the question, you know, for for me, therefore, enlightenment would simply be never overlooking that again, right? So you know, I, I'm. So I'm enlightened right now when I recognize that that's what consciousness is like, but then I forget it again, right? So I'm not, I'm definitely, I'm not saying I'm an enlightened being um, because I know, you know, two minutes from now, I'm going to be worried about what I'm going to have for lunch. And in that, in that mode, I'm going to be overlooking this pristine quality to consciousness. But the, but the crucial point is that there's nowhere I need to go and really nothing I need to do to recognize it again. And that that can take some work to get to that place in one's practice. But, you know, that's that's where I am. And it's it's uh, you know, it's a wonderful tool at this stage to be able to have. But ultimately it's just, you know, if enlightenment is something if if true enlightenment's possible, it's a matter of that becoming so obvious that there would no there'd be no way to ever overlook it again. And that's that's certainly, you know, to, to get to that place is 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 what motivates me in my practice at this point. Sam, thanks for your time, pal. Yeah, yeah. Take care. That was Sam Harris on the latest episode of How to Wow. Sam has his very own podcast. It's called Making Sense. It's brilliant. He has a fantastic meditation app called Waking Up, and he's about to embark on that special audio mission that he alluded to during our chat with his good friend, Ricky Gervais. All right, that's all for now. If you like this episode, please rate and review and recommend to your friends. All right, ta-da!